Welcome to season three of What Really Happened, executive produced by Seven Bucks Productions, Dwayne Johnson, Danny Garcia, and Brian Gewertz in association with Cadence 13. It's written and hosted by me, Andrew Jenks, and you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Andrew Jenks. You can also become a contributor to the show by going to jenkspod.com slash contributors. This story contains strong language and potentially disturbing content. Discretion is advised. Barry Sherman's dad ran a zipper company. His mom was an occupational therapist. Barry's grandparents fled persecution in Russia and Poland. Barry went to college at 16 years old. He enrolled at the University of Toronto, majoring in engineering physics, a major he selected because it was apparently the hardest. He also signed up for the Canadian Army. Soon after, he went to MIT. Barry wasted no time making his mark. After graduating, he took over his uncle's pharmaceutical business, the Empire Group of Companies. They had the rights in Canada to manufacture Valium and was one of the country's largest manufacturers of pharmaceutical drugs. In 1970, Barry, in his late 20s, invested in New York's Bar Laboratories. He became president and its largest shareholder. By 1974, he started Apotex. 30 years later, Apotex was Canada's premier drug manufacturer. They sold 260 products in over 115 countries. Revenues were about $1.5 billion annually. Barry was known to work all the time, and it clearly paid off. He came a long way from helping out with his dad's zipper company to being worth over $3 billion. One thing he wasn't, particularly social. When I tracked down one former coworker of Barry's, he said, Barry himself never hobnobbed you know, with the rich and the famous, you know, you didn't see him on the Toronto, you know, or the Ottawa social circuits. He wasn't interested. Low key kind of guy. We would fly to Washington, D.C., you know, to talk to our lobbyists and we'd fly coach, even though Barry probably could have purchased Air Canada, you know, and owned the airline himself. He's just not that guy. In 1971, Barry married Honey Reich. She also went to the University of Toronto and was born in Austria to Polish Holocaust survivors. And while Barry was the workaholic who didn't love hanging out at a party, Honey was social. She was known to be on the charity circuit. She ran around the country, even the world, helping others and raising money. It was something both she and her husband believed in. Barry Sherman once said, I don't think any person can be a happy person if he is successful in life and doesn't give back to community. If there was one thing Barry and Honey Sherman were known for, it was charity. Over 50 million in medicines shipped to every disaster zone around the globe. Well over 100 million to foundations, universities, hospitals, you name it. How do I know about all of this charity? It was endlessly talked about at their funeral. Of course, where he and Honey left their most indelible mark is in their incredible commitment to charity. To be successful in business, 
and make contributions to charity. So consistently engaged in acts of charity. In addition to their public lives of business success and charity. Charity is understood as a voluntary act of kindness. Generosity and charity. So many acts of charity. On Friday, December 15th, 2017, Barry and Honey Sherman were found dead, with belts strapped around their neck tied to a railing. Both were strangled to death. This was personal. Their funeral was packed with family, friends, and co-workers. And there wasn't just a few dozen or a few hundred people. There were 6,000 in attendance, including the mayor of Toronto, the premier of Ontario, and the prime minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau. Everyone was asking the same question. For a couple who gave so much money to those less fortunate, for a couple who didn't like to show off their money, for a couple that had been staples of the community for over 40 years. Why was this done? Who did it? What really happened? Although neither drove fancy cars or flew private jets around, Barry, 75 years old, and Honey Sherman, 70 years old, did live in a beautiful home in a wealthy area of Toronto. And after 20 years in this mansion, they decided to move to a mansion that would be closer to Toronto. So they put their house up for sale for $5 million. On Friday, December 15th, 2017, two real estate agents were giving a couple a tour of the Sherman's home. It was 12,000 square feet, had five bedrooms and nine bathrooms. The group checked out the outdoor swimming pool, the underground parking lot for at least six cars, an entrance hall with a chandelier and a curved staircase, then the tennis court, the sauna, and finally, the real estate agent was ready to show the indoor pool, which was in the back of the house. In fact, you had to walk down a long, narrow hallway just to get to it. The real estate agent started to walk inside, but noticed something. She saw two people dead. It was Barry and Honey, side by side on the floor. Two black leather belts were strapped around their necks and fastened to the swimming pool railing, as in the railing used when you're stepping into or out of your pool. But their bodies were not hanging. Barry's body was placed on the ground as if he was seated, with his legs extended and his ankles crossed. Honey's body wasn't sitting up, but instead on the side, and her face seemed to have been hit. Evidence showed that both hadn't died by a hanging. Instead, they had been blinded and or tied while being manually strangled. To strangle someone isn't easy, much less to manually strangle two people. It requires a fit of rage or a professional hitman. And to think a professional hitman did this or someone who was just furious made me wonder, is there something more to the Shermans than just their charity work? I would describe Barry Sherman as a very determined, very aggressive son of a bitch. Meet Jeffrey Robinson. Jeffrey wrote a book titled Prescription Games, which was about the money, ego, and power inside the global pharmaceutical industry. Seeing as Barry ran one of the top three generic drug manufacturers in North America, Jeffrey got to know Barry 
and interviewed him. When you did business with him, he did it his way. And if you didn't, he made sure that you did. There's a story, perfect story, gives the example of a young doctor named Nancy Olivieri, who was at Children's Hospital in, in uh, Toronto and needed some testing done on a drug that she wanted to use and that he backed. And when the tests came out negative, where she determined that the drugs were not what he wanted them to do, he simply went around her and, and produced it anyway and fudged the test. He couldn't do it in Canada, but he did it. He got other tests done in Europe that kind of supported his, um, his stance on the drug and produced it anyway. When in fact she said, no, you can't do this. It's not right. It's going to hurt people. He didn't care. He'd invested enough money that he could, he thought, buy a better opinion. And the Olivieri case was very nasty. He, he was appalling to her. But that's the way he treated people. If Barry didn't like you, if Barry thought you would hurt his business, well, as Ruben said in Ocean's Eleven, he'd better not know you're involved, not know your names, or think you're dead because he'll kill you. And then he'll get to work on you. Okay, well, maybe Barry wouldn't kill you, but he'd sue you with everything he had. Barry Sherman loved suing anyone who he thought did him wrong. He once invested in a luxury yacht company, only for it to turn out the company was a scam. For starters, there weren't any yachts. So who did Barry sue? His accountants. Barry claimed they had dropped the ball. The case was thrown out of court. You know, you looked at him cross-eyed, he'd sue you. Even on the day Barry Sherman was last seen, his lawyers were filing a $150,000 lawsuit against a gaming app Sherman had invested in. Nobody in all of Canada filed as many lawsuits as Barry Sherman. There were thousands. For Jeffrey, it calls a bit into question all of that charity I had heard about. Yeah, his business ethics were tough, and, and he wanted it his way, and it was his money, and he was going to get the results he wanted. So there are seriously questionable ethics. Charity, of course, is the way you solve your conscience. You know, when you are a miserable bastard, uh, you just give a lot of money to charity, you win a lot of awards, and everybody says, oh, he's such a charitable guy, hoping that they look the other way when it comes to your ethics. And this, this is characteristic of lots and lots and lots of people where they are terrible people, but give an awful lot of money to charity so that you, uh, you sometimes question the fact that they may not be so terrible. So could it be someone Barry had sued who wanted him and his wife dead? Was this some sort of retribution? So could it be someone Barry had sued who wanted him and his wife dead? Was this some sort of retribution? The police went to work. They always say in every investigation, follow the money. Now, I'm sure that the Canadian police have done that. What's come in and what's gone out? But there isn't anything easy about Barry's finances. After helping a friend post bail, a lawyer asked Barry where he got the money from. Barry responded, I don't know. My banking is very, very complex. I simply instructed my staff to have the money forwarded. I tracked down the man who spent years working alongside Barry filing all those lawsuits, Shashank Upadai. Shashank was the chief lawyer for Barry's company between 2007 and 2012. First, I have to say, 
Shashank got the job in the first place in the most Barry Sherman way possible. Barry was, surprise, surprise, filing a lawsuit. Shashank represented the defendant, and Barry lost the lawsuit. So what did he do? He had actually said, I want that guy to work for me, whoever it is that guy is that just basically shot me down. And I'm wondering why he doesn't. And they hired a recruiter to basically pursue me. And that took about eight months, you know, for the recruitment process. Getting back to Barry Sherman's complex finances, Shashank saw firsthand all of the businesses Barry was involved in. It wasn't just the pharmaceutical side, you know, at the, you know, you name it, there were probably dozens and dozens of, you know, corporations or numbered, numbered companies that had Apotex as the address. So he had a Byzantine, you know, corporate structure that was invested in, you know, everything from gold mines and restaurants and paintball and juice companies, beer companies. I mean, you name it, you know, he had some investments there, not all of them that went well. And as a consequence of that, People were wondering who may have done it and what was the motive. It seems like an investigation with endless possibilities. And the police had the public's attention. Shashank said, I mean, we have to kind of take it back a little bit. And that is uh, crime to that level of murders and everything else just doesn't exist in Canada, right? I mean, we kind of joke about there's... 30 or 40 handgun, you know, or gun fatalities across Canada in a given year. And there's 30 in the first 30 minutes in Chicago, right? You know, once the new year starts. So as soon as anybody gets murdered in Canada, that becomes a big thing. Then on top of that, it's Barry and Honey Sherman, right? We're talking about Canada's elite billionaire level of people, right? And though Honey was more in the social circles, Barry was not, it's still big news, right? Because this is just, you know, Barry Sherman, you know, being murdered. During law enforcement's first press conference, they clearly had a mountain of information. To date, close to 150 bulk or packaged items have been seized and are currently being reviewed and forensically analyzed. A total of 127 witness statements have been compiled. This number continues to grow each day. Neighborhood canvases have occurred in the area surrounding the Sherman residence. This has included the collection of approximately four terabytes of security video from both commercial and residential properties. There are approximately 500 hours in each of these terabytes. And finally, 348 investigative actions have been assigned and are being vigorously pursued. But they didn't have everything. The only surveillance camera at the house, which happened to be in the pool area, hadn't been turned on in months, possibly years. The Shermans hadn't been seen since they both had left work two days prior. There were at least nine entrances into the house. Friends say that the Shermans wouldn't think twice if someone knocked on the door. There was also an outdoor lockbox, so real estate agents could let themselves in to show the house. This created more unknowns. Said Jeffrey Robinson. Most murders get solved within the first 72 hours. In fact, in many police forces, if the murder investigation is not solved in 72 hours, it's dropped. It's put on ice until something else happens. And the reason why is because most people who get murdered are killed by people they know. It's the husband, it's the wife, it's the boyfriend, it's the girlfriend, it's the neighbor, it's the you know, angry business partner, whatever. 
So when you do a murder investigation, the police come in and they immediately look at the closest suspects and eliminate them one by one. So they looked at Sherman and he looked at his business associates and they looked at his family. And there were problems with certain members of the family. Jeffrey is referring to Carrie Winter, Barry's cousin. Barry was, of course, in a lawsuit with Carrie over money. And after Barry's death, Carrie gave an interview to a Canadian news outlet. He claimed that years ago, Barry had told him he wanted his wife, Honey, dead. Carrie claimed Barry hated his wife. And in December of 2017, sources told the Toronto Star that law enforcement was probing the possibility that this was a murder-suicide. Did Barry Sherman kill his wife and then himself? After all, Honey Sherman had marks on her face, while Barry did not. And although it seemed like authorities had no motive for Barry to commit murder, there was also no signs of a forced entry into the house. Not to mention, there weren't any obvious suspects. The Sherman family was outraged at the idea. During the funeral, his son took aim at such accusations. We've had to navigate through a terrifying maze of non-information and unfounded speculation, all while trying to support each other emotionally. Through their lawyer, the family went on to say, We are shocked and think it's irresponsible that police sources have reportedly advised the media of a theory which neither their family, their friends, nor their colleagues believe to be true. Family members have said that Carrie, who had also been a crack addict, has had psychological problems. His sister-in-law wrote in an affidavit, I did not approve of Carrie's recent statements to the press. I attribute it to his illness. The police ultimately ruled out that this was a murder-suicide. Carrie had taken publications around the world for a ride, seemingly for just a bit of attention. What people will do to get on TV. This left everyone wondering who else could have committed these murders. When Jeffrey told me the following, I nearly jumped out of my crappy little desk chair. It was something I hadn't thought of and hadn't read about as a real possibility. But then you have to look at something else, because it wasn't only Sherman who got murdered, it was his wife. So you say, well, maybe one of them was simply collateral damage. So if it's not Sherman, maybe it's the wife. Maybe somebody was out to get the wife, and he was in the room at the time. Jeffrey has no proof, but he's keeping a wide net. I think the neglected aspect is her. Because everybody talks about him getting knocked off. Well, she, she was murdered too. And I think that a lot of questions have to be asked about her. It is very possible that she was the target and he was simply collateral damage. I go back to the idea that this was retribution. After all, some of Barry's lawsuits and some of the lawsuits against him involved people accusing each other of stealing high-valued secrets and formulas to new medications. For example, only months before his death, Barry's company sued a former employee claiming he had plans to build a factory in Pakistan using stolen drug formulations. There was another case where Barry's company was accused of stealing secretive material. Barry had also helped out white-collar criminals he'd gotten to know over the years, 
After all, Barry Sherman liked to help people. So is there a chance this was a professional hit job? Or am I out of line? Maybe my, the creative side of my mind is getting carried away. But if you're doing business with very, very shady characters at times, could there be a hit out for someone like this? Yeah, you get, you know, you lie down with dogs, you catch fleas. And when you do business with shady people, you can expect them to act in a shady manner. Sherman had lawyers and could fight most of these things in court. And most of the people he was dealing with had lawyers and could fight them in court. You know, Big Pharma employs lots and lots and lots of lawyers. And if they had a problem with him, and they did, they took him to court. That's not to say everybody does that. And that's not to say that if there was a debt someplace that wasn't getting paid, or if he had just pissed somebody off for, I don't know, stealing something, or taking advantage of something, and was properly warned, and didn't believe it, uh, that's kind of what happens. You, you can't fool around with bad guys. There's a reason why they're bad guys. You look at all these people around, and you eliminate them one by one. And who's left? In this case, it doesn't seem to be anybody. Because no arrests have been made. Well, what does that say? The physical scene suggests that this was a professional hit. After all, most people are not professionally murdered. Most people you know, are stabbed or shot by the boyfriend, the girlfriend, whatever. This was professionally done. Somebody was willing to pay a lot of money to get rid of this guy and his wife. Now, who is it? Obviously, the, the Canadian police don't know yet, or they would have move the investigation a lot further along. Now, if you want to hire somebody to kill somebody, it's not that complicated a thing to do. But if you've got a lot of money, and if you're a big deal who can reach certain people, for example, there is a group in Russia called Korganskaya, and they are the Russian equivalent of Murder Incorporated. And I followed a case in Miami where two guys from Russia flew in on pick a day, the Tuesday, they whacked the guy Tuesday afternoon. They were on a flight back to Russia on Tuesday night. Good luck. You know, that's what they do for a living, these guys. Well, was that what happened to the Shermans? I don't know, but you can't rule that out, that somebody flew in, two people, three people, did what they had to do, and left the country immediately. And that becomes a case that is very, very difficult to solve. No obvious motive, no obvious perps, no obvious or evident crime scene because they, they look at it and they know what happened to them, but they have too many unanswered questions about how it happened. Too often in true crime, we forget that there was an actual victim. Shashank says several media outlets have reached out to him looking for a specific narrative. I have been asked to participate in interviews where people are just trying to figure out the persona that he has in the public, that he is just this bull in the china shop and that he's just aggressive and it's a you know hold, uh, take no prisoner type of approach that everybody wants to figure out that. But Shashank paints a picture of Barry which isn't nearly as brutal and as one-sided as some publications would have you believe. 
there's the outward appearance of Barry Sherman and then the internal guy who's just he's just a genuinely nice guy. Shashank didn't just reference the endless charities Barry gave to, but what hasn't been reported on. What Barry was like when dealing with those who worked for him. There's another side to Barry, the Barry that is was brilliant. He was a proud Canadian. He was fiercely protective of his employees and, you know, was a very genuinely nice boss or a genuinely nice guy to work with. And then on top of that, he cared about other people. For instance, there was one time when it was recommended to Barry that he fire several employees. The employees hadn't done anything wrong. Their functions at the company just weren't necessary anymore. He was concerned whether, you know, some technician in the in the factory was a single mom, and if she were to lose her job, what could we do? Or, you know, how would that affect her? You had a, a husband that was the major breadwinner in a family of four. Again, it, it got back down to an, any other company, especially a publicly traded, you know, stock-owned company, would be thinking about how to slash costs right away, not bury, right? how to let go of employees right away, not Barry. Not even being involved in, you know, the decisions to which employees to dismiss, not Barry. Barry wanted to review each one of the employees that were on the hit list. It was was beautiful. I mean, honestly, you know? Ultimately, what's next? Jeffrey Robinson told me... There is one thing that is characteristic of unsolved murders. And that's the cold case aspect. It's still too soon, not now. But in five years, in 10 years, if somebody looks at this as a cold case, a 10 or 15 or 20-year-old cold case, and picks it up, what those investigators find, what the cold case guys find, is that witnesses are no longer afraid of what they were afraid of 15 or 20 years before. And they come forward. And evidence suddenly appears that was overlooked your first time. And it's possible that 10 years from now, somebody's going to come forward and say, I couldn't talk then, but I can talk now because I'm no longer afraid. I suspect eventually this will be solved. And I suspect when it is solved, there will be one or two cops who said, why didn't we look there? Recently, and kind of by mistake, reports have surfaced that the police are onto something. A local reporter interviewed a neighbor about the case. This neighbor said she had surveillance video and she gave that video to police. The tape showed a car in the Sherman's parking lot the day before their bodies were found. Could it have been a real estate agent showing the place? A cleaning person that was scheduled to come? Well, early reports suggest this car may show something or someone far more important in sorting out the case. There aren't nearly enough facts available to say what happened, to sort out who did this. If you ask me, it was a professional hit job, an act of retribution. I just think of all of the businesses Barry Sherman was involved in. But let's be clear, this remains a mystery. I do know that the Sherman's charity work was extensive, if only everyone with that kind of wealth gave like they did. And Barry and Honey's four children all adults, are continuing that legacy. Their daughter launched Liberation 75, a global gathering of Holocaust survivors. She and her siblings also started the Sherman Foundations, 
to help oversee the projects their parents had begun. But the Sherman's kids are also worried. They have said publicly that since they don't know who did this to their parents, there is a concern. Could they be next? And that nightmare will likely continue until someone figures out what really happened. Next week on What Really Happened, it was a Tinder match, then a date. But she got sick, and when she returned home, her date was in her basement. 911 was called, but the police came in a surprise fashion. Unless the whole thing was made up. That's next week on What Really Happened. If you like the podcast, I'd humbly ask you to subscribe, rate, and review. It actually can make a big difference. For any other feedback, you can reach out to me on Twitter or Instagram, Facebook, at Andrew Jenks, or go to jenkspod.com for more information on the sources for this podcast.